Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Uh, okay, listen now for the click track, everybody. Uh, and away we go. This is uh, track one. Take one, yeah. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Hello, I'm Sonic Architect Adam Shanahan and welcome back to the latest episode of Before the Encore. Um, firstly, I just want to thank everyone who listened to episode one um, and really, really appreciate all the kind messages that I received afterwards. And um, it was really nice to see that something that I've been sitting on and thinking about for a long time um, resonated with so many people and so many people enjoyed it. So, uh, yeah, thanks everyone for reaching out if you have reached out and thanks for coming back for episode two for those of you who aren't familiar with the format i talk to people behind the music and i'm talking to people who push the artists forward who are involved in the songwriting who are involved in live shows who are involved in the business of music essentially the driving for us the driving forces excuse me behind the artists and like I said, that can range from anyone, songwriters, producers, managers, PR. Um, and in today's case, uh, arrangers, uh, session musicians and musical directors. Today's episode is going to focus on uh, Theodora Byrne. Theodora Byrne is a musical director, choir, arranger and session musician. And she is currently playing with Circa Richardson, Saint Sister and James Vincent McMorrow. Um, she has worked in the past with... Um, many, many, many acts, including the Coronas, Amy, Mary Black, Roisin O, Cece Brez, Jackson, uh, X One, uh, Kieran Lavery, Maria Kelly. The list is absolutely endless. And I'm really, really grateful that um, Theodora has taken the time to speak to me about her musical journey and, you know, chat about, uh, I suppose, anything under the sun. You know, I just I'm really looking forward to 
um, hearing about her experience, especially because she's had such a broad range of roles um, and a lot of them I wouldn't be overly familiar with. So I'm really excited to, you know, dive in and hear what she has to say and um, looking forward to hearing, you know, stories about touring and all these kind of venues that she's played. Like she's played in the likes of uh, the Sydney Opera House, the Roundhouse Theatre, Webster Hall in New York, the Dolby Theatre in LA. Um, she's had television appearances on, you know, Jules Holland and Jimmy Kimmel, huge TV shows that we all know. Um, and this, it, it, like, I wouldn't have known that, you know, someone like Theodora would have been on these shows. And that's what I'm hoping the podcast will highlight to um, people who might not be as uh, ingrained in the music industry as myself um, being a music producer and that. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation, have been for a while. I'd, I, there's going to be a lot in this one, um, so bear with us. Um, and thanks again for tuning in. I also want to say thanks to Dave and Craig, um, Dave Hanready and Craig Fitzpatrick of the No Encore podcast, of which I edit um, for the guys every week as their sonic architect, as mentioned at the top of the show. They've afforded me this opportunity to um, come on and, you know, have this space for me to bring this to yourselves as No Encore listeners and as podcast listeners in general. So um, massive thanks to Dave Hanready and Craig Fitzpatrick of the No Encore podcast. Um, if by now you're not familiar with the No Encore format, if you're coming in just to listen to Before the Encore, I highly recommend that you get um, in tune with No Encore. It comes out every Friday and it uh, will contain your weekly dose of music news your album review provided there is a, an album out that week of note and a top five shootout which can be themed to anything under the sun we're talking top five driving songs um which has been one of the most contentious ones because neither dave nor craig have a driving license <laughs> um we've had top five unreleased projects which i felt was probably one of the more enjoyable ones like to just listen to the guys talk about um of late you've got top five summer anthems you've you know um the list is massive um so really in, like i think you should enjoy going back in having a look through and finding a top five that you think you like and just listen to the episode because um the guys are great at what they do and i'm very very fortunate to be part of the no encore podcast um, so make sure to check it out No Encore is on Patreon patreon.com slash no encore please 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 consider subscribing um, you get your weekly kind of blog posts with uh, with with Dave and he, he lets you know what's kind of coming up um, on the show for the week um, which is always very informative and there's always a bit of a laugh in there as well as playlists um, from the previous week's top fives um, we've got the monthly no ox court which is where myself dave and craig talk about what we've been listening to and um, it's all very casual that one's a bit more fun we've got q a episodes up there too um, and lots more stuff to come in the near future and um, i certainly hope so um it's worth parting with your fiver a month if um if you can afford it so i highly recommend getting stuck into that and i know i'm biased but please take my word for it uh, <laughs> the guys are great um and i don't think i'm so bad you know but I'll leave that up to yourselves. Um, but in the meantime, I'm going to stop rambling because this has gone on for long enough. I'm going to let, let us get to the episode. So without further ado, this is Before the Encore with Theodora Byrne. <laughs> 
I could have got a job. Feels like we're always been a contender. Feels like we'll never. Cause this streak is only so long. They're all different shades of the same songs. Wind in these sails. your favorite venue you've played in is Ooh, um, there's been some really really great ones just before covid it was actually my last gig before covid um when covid hit i was in the states with saint sister and mm. um, it was my first tour with them we were opening for keen mm-hmm. um and we played the dolby theater which is where the oscars is held mm. i believe it was built to host the Oscars which is really cool so that was amazing like beautiful like just beautiful like big theatre so that was very cool and we actually didn't know that it was like the the tour was obviously cut short it was supposed to be a three week tour we got four shows Mm. in um, and just with the timing we didn't we had a day off the next day and we were on our way to Denver for the following day and then that's when everything got cancelled so when we were doing the show we didn't know that it was our last show which is really good because I think there would have been a lot of pressure on it if we knew, you know, this is the last show of the tour for we don't know how long. Um, so like we had a really fun show, you know, we were like a couple of shows into the tour, kind of hitting our stride. Everything yeah. was feeling really natural. Um, just this beautiful venue. It was sold out. It was full, you know, like everything was great. <laughs> and it was a support show. So, you know, we got to watch Keen after. <clears throat> um, some of our pals were in were in L.A. They came to the show. So like we got to. You know, we got to play a great show. We got to watch Keane's great show. We got to go for a few drinks after. It was just really, really lovely. But I like that's definitely uh, will always stick out as a significant venue for me. Um, a couple of years ago in 2017, I think, um, on tour with James Vincent McMorrow, we got to play Sydney Opera House, which mm. was mind blowing. Mind blowing. I can only imagine. Like, just <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. Even just stand, like the, for me thinking about that, it's just like even standing in front of it and just like, like yeah it, knowing that that's a, a such a huge landmark building by itself absolutely. as opposed to like being one of you know the most renowned venues in the world absolutely and like i you know i'd never been to australia before we'd before before i was there on tour and mm. like you know when we got the information about the tours like sydney opera house oh my god that's so cool mm-hmm. um so that was and like that was you know fairly Early on, like my, you know, my first tours were were with James in 2016. Mm. Um, so not only was it amazing to play such an iconic venue and you know such an iconic building, even, um, but to do it so so early in my touring career was was a really an exceptionally proud moment. And actually, the night before we play there, the promoter invited us to see the opera there. So like we actually kind of got to go and because there's a few venues in yeah. inside the building. So we got to go and like hang out and see it and go, like actually go to something there. You know, we got to be spectators. Yeah, get the, the feel for what it's going to yeah. be like. Yeah, but just kind of like I think it's it's kind of easy to forget that, you know, there's there's people sitting there that are watching and they have obviously have a totally different experience of mm-hmm. the gig than we do. So just to be able to, you know, like you said, be a be a spectator in such an iconic place let alone play what a what a yeah. what a treat but even just getting to be there getting to see the place was was really really cool but that's yeah that's probably the one that sticks out the most 
Yeah, I can um, ima- I can imagine definitely, like I said, with it being such an iconic place by itself, you know, it having yeah. just like, like it being a separate entity to being a music venue, you know. Um, yeah. You mentioned that that was really early in your touring career. How did that, how did that come about that you started um, touring? Would you have been like, I know you've done session work and I know we've spoken um, briefly just about your um, musical direction that you've that you've been doing and um, mm-hmm. arrangements and stuff. Where, like, how did you how did it get to the point where you became a touring musician? Was it sure? Did it start in studios? Did it start? Where, let me know kind of where. Yeah. What led um, to that so, point? Yeah. Um, so I went to BIM Dublin, which is um, uh, th- it's the British and Irish Modern Music Institute. I did a I did a degree in commercial modern music, specialising in vocals. Um, I'm also a keyboard player, so I studied vocals. But I sort of the majority of the work that I do is is keys and vocals. So mm-hmm. when I was there, I did a lot of a lot of work, you know, for for performing with other people and having other people perform with me. Um, when it like over my four years in college, I you know worked with lots and lots of people like other people who were in college. And then I suppose like a lot of session work, it's just kind of word of mouth. Then, you know, someone reckon, oh, you, you know, you should call Theo for that. She's, she's, she's good. Here's her number. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is just word of mouth. Um, I started playing with a band called Planet Parade, who were a two piece from Kildare. Um, myself and some of the guys from college were, uh, were in their session band and, you know, just every slightly bigger gig leads to something else slightly bigger. I played with Roshi No for a couple of months or about mm-hmm. a year. Um, you know, all all sorts of, all all kinds of scales of gigs. Mm. Um, lots of little things kind of lead up to slightly bigger things. And um, there's a gig every year in Vicker Street for New Year's Eve. It's called the Turning Pirate Mixtape. Mm-hmm. And um, my boyfriend Joe started doing that in... He did his first one in 2013, I think. Um, and he was made musical director, I think, the following year. Mm. And that that following year, so I guess 2014, I could be could be totally wrong yeah. here, but I think 2014, 2015, um, we did some other gigs, not just the New Year's Eve one. So we did a Back to the Future one on the date that they go into the future, Brilliant. into uh, in the movie. So we did a, a a gig in the Button Factory of the music from Back to the Future, mm. um, and myself and two of my pals sang back and vocals for that. And you know that's like house band and then guest artists. Yeah. Um. And I, I mean, I can't remember how many guest artists were on it, but James McMorrow was was one of them. Mm. And um, so Joe, who's my boyfriend, who was musical director and bass player for that gig. He said to James, look, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of your music and if you ever need a bass player. Um, so he got hired by James to 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 play bass on tour for his upcoming tour, for his next tour. Mm. And um, a couple of months after he hired Joe, uh, he found himself in a scenario when he where he needed a keyboard player for the upcoming tour. And just like through getting to know Joe... He had come to some other gigs, like he'd come to a Planet Parade show in Bellabar, I think. Yeah. So he'd seen me play. Um, so again, it's just like word of mouth and seeing people at gigs mm. and making connections and introducing yourself to people, which I'm terrible at. I'm re- <laughs> I I network puts networking puts the fear of God in me. Yeah. Um, I feel like um, it, it, it's something I've kind of noticed in the last couple of years, like being more involved. Like I would have just been production for such a long time and then I, I you 
you kind of you're almost like doing a favor for someone like I'm now um, musical directing for Nilo for his shows. Cool. So that's been great. But like, again, it's like trying to figure out how to get from A to B is like absolutely terrifying. Like the networking part for me would be so tough. It's like more. Oh, and now like because I've made this connection, I'm now being asked to do this thing. Mm. And it is scaring the living bejesus out of me. Do you know that kind yeah, of Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, there is an element of, um, as a session player or, you know, as a musical director, all these kind of jobs that we do, it does, re- it relies on other people hiring us. Mm, yeah. So, you know, you're always trying to put your best foot forward. You're always trying to show up prepared, be really nice, be helpful, be on top of things. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I I like to always try and be prepared. I like to always try and, you know, be kind of performing at my peak, whether that's musically or behind the scenes or in preparation or in rehearsal. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Using those connections. How do you how do you turn those connections into work, I suppose? <laughs> yeah. What does prep involve then for you in each kind of facet of your work? So like what would prep involve for um, musical direction and how would that differ for session work like how is there is there a difference is it the same kind of pattern that you follow or how would it work on on your end um the 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 most most important thing i think is time Mm. i just you you need loads of time for everything like the the majority of the work that i do is session work i'm i'm starting to get into a little bit of music direction now Mm -hmm. um but with everything you need time you need time to to be with the material time to learn the tracks, get comfortable playing them, get comfortable singing, working out backing vocals, findings and sounds, finding your best, you know, what, what, what needs to be in your setup? What keyboards do I need to be playing? How much stuff do I need to be bringing? Do I need, you know, one keyboards, three keyboards, what, whatever it is, what's my best layout? How am I set up? Um, you know, how much of specific parts do I need to have or how much of just do I just need to be really familiar with the music what's mm-hmm. the rest of the band set up are we working with track is it all live um, it really de- it really depends artist to artist but I think the best thing you can give yourself in preparation is time um, particularly for session work and then for musical direction I suppose time and also like communication I suppose in session work it's kind of the same mm. communication like communicating with the artist what's the artist's vision um like I've I've always maintained that the thing that I really love about what I do as a session player in particular is like the the jigsaw the puzzle mm. you know you you have someone's got an album or a, a song or a piece of work or whatever and we now have to translate that into live how do we make that happen yeah you know what instruments do we need what people do we need do we all need to be singing is there track? Is there click? Is there this? Is there that? You know, what what gear do we need? What setup of people do we need? How are we going to make it work? Mm-hmm. That's the thing that I really love about what I do. And I suppose it's it's the same with everyone. You know, what's the artist's vision and how do we realise that? Yeah, and that's like, it, that directly translates to production, but it's just at such an earlier stage. So mm. it, like you, an artist is coming in with an idea and you're trying to make that how do I say it? You're trying to like make that happen through you. You're trying to like be that vessel for that to happen mm. through. So mm. I found that, you know, I think that's, 
I don't I don't know if it's why I was asked or I don't know if it's like just why I enjoy it and I felt like the transition was um smoother than I initially thought it would be from doing some musical direction work with Nilo from like producing his album the first mm-hmm. album um and being familiar with the music is because you're once again trying to make that happen you're trying to realize the vision for the live show yeah you're trying to create that environment you're trying to create that sound um now I'm doing it on a much smaller scale. Um, I find that what you when you talk about oh you know all the gear and like is there clear all the variables like that to me is like oh I kind of it, it's exciting to think that you know that could be a possibility someday. Yeah. Um, on but my I don't end. think that I don't think that's a scale thing. You know, like you can have tracks and click and all that nonsense at a tiny scale. You can you know it's it's scale is sometimes important but I don't think it's all Mm -hmm. the time important you know you're still holding yourself to a high standard you're still communicating with the artist you're still trying to make it the best product whether you're playing to 10 people or whether you're playing to 10,000 people you know Mm -hmm. it's still it's the same work you don't put in less work just because it's a smaller show um at least I don't think no you're I I think (laughs) I I think you're right I think like the time you say about time spent um on these things it is so important because like the onus is on you I suppose as someone who's you know even like you say as uh, as, as a session player like you're it's kind of on you to make sure you get it right and make sure that yeah. you're like 110% on your A game um, yeah. and there's pressure in that too um, like a lot of pressure particularly when you say like I know we talk we talk about scale but even playing the bigger shows do you feel like the pressure, how do you, how have you dealt with the pressure first of all? And do you feel like the pressure um, amplifies the, the you know, with the bigger venue or if the tour is bigger or do you just feel like it's kind of a, is, it, is there a plateau? Um, That's an interesting question. I don't know. It's hard to know. I think, so one of my first, well, it was definitely my biggest gig. I think it probably still is my be- biggest gig to date. My third gig with James Vincent McMorrow was opening for Cigaros in Kilmainham, wow. which I think was 15,000 people. I don't remember a single second of that gig. I know that it <laughs> happened because there's photographic evidence. But I remember walking <laughs> on stage, looking out and going, that's a lot of people. And yeah. then I remember nothing else. Um, and I think I, I, I don't think I don't remember it because there was so many people. I think... I don't remember it because it was a combination of being so many people, very new gig, you know, Mm -hmm. still, still finding my feet a little bit, um, just nerve wracking experience. But I think that was more so new gig, wanting to do really well, wanting to make a great impression as opposed to not wanting to mess things up in front of loads of people. I do think that sometimes there can be a safety in playing to loads of people. You're like, I, you know, I can't really see people up at the back that's fine whereas you know sometimes you're playing a gig and like your best mate's standing in front of you and you're like oh this is way worse Almost more pre- know, yeah like, it's more pressure yeah, coming know, from one person than opposed to yeah you know, like the or like you know 000. when you're playing a small venue and you know like all your mates are like hey yeah. that can be it, it's a very different kind of kind of um it's a it's a different kind of experience of being in front of crowd yeah um but i i generally i get more kind of giddy adrenaline-y um like pre-show jitters I wouldn't say I get 
like I, I don't think I have performance anxiety or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You get kind of like before you go on and then you get mm-hmm. on, you're like, OK, this is great. Everything is fine. Yeah, it's like yeah. that. Once it, it, it's like you step onto the X on the stage and all of a sudden like it's like, right, exactly. I'm, I'm in. It's like there's a for me, it's like when I sit down at the boards in the studio and I'm like, OK, now the cloak is now come out like my. Like to reference Harry Potter, yeah, it's like an <laughs> invisibility cloak kind of comes over, and you're like, right, yeah. th- nothing else exists. This is, yeah, and, and like to have that confidence of knowing, like, okay, first of all, I've been asked to be here. Um, second of all, I know I'm good at what I do. You yeah. know, to that must help so much. But it's funny, isn't it, how that can you say like if it's a smaller venue and you've got like ten mates up the front and they're like you know, looking at you and smiling and like ready for, you know, they're like just waiting like for that to be more psychologically challenging yeah. than 15,000 people in. Big time, big time. In, in like stage. when we did the, the, the Ivy Gardens show back in June, the, mm. the pilot gig, um, I got like uncharacteristically nervous before we went on. I think it was just like, this is the first gig back and it feels really high pressure and, you know, mm. we have to, it has to be great and we have to, you know, prove that music is worthy of support and all this kind of thing, you know, all, all in your head. Mm. Um, I was really nervous and I don't usually get that kind of nervous, really like kind of feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders. Yeah. And then we, you know... The, the the first song started, we walked on, I stepped up onto my riser and I was just like, oh, I'm back where I belong. You know, yeah. you forget that before COVID, you know, we were doing this every day of the week. Yeah. And we've all gotten out of the habit of it the last year. You know, you, you keep playing, you keep performing in whatever way you could, you know, whether it was online stuff or stuff from home or streamed gigs and these kind of things. But I had kind of forgotten the safety that you get from doing like, this is actually my natural habitat. Yeah up on stage behind the keyboards I know my stuff and like you said you know I've I've, someone wants me to be there yeah they have specifically chosen me to be there I know this song we're so sorry my voice just cracked (laughs) (laughs) like a 12 year old boy um you know we're we're rehearsed down to the ground like yeah really you know really feeling like Oh yeah, okay. This is this is where I'm supposed to be. This is yeah. this is this is where I'm good. Yeah, it's like everything kind of slows down for a split second. It's like, oh, actually, everything's fine. You know, it, you're just it, back in your natural habitat. Actually, it's, it's good that you brought that up because I wanted to ask you about the preparation for that show. Mm-hmm. That, that to me, I like, I ju- like when I saw that show was happening. All I could think about was, you know, Circa and the band and James and the band. And I know there's like, I know there's a bit of crossover there in terms of who mm-hmm. plays um, with each other and stuff. But all I could think about was how exciting those rehearsals must have been those first rehearsals yeah. back uh, what was it like stepping back into the rehearsal space uh, sweaty 
<laughs> it was the, the really, really nice weather before that gig. And we yeah. were in, in a room all sweating, basically. Yeah. Um, it was great. It was really, really exciting. It was, I mean, it was so last minute. I think from when the gig got confirmed, it was 13 days to show. Wow. Okay. So quick yeah. turnaround. Very quick turnaround. And we had some new band members. So Kian Hanley, who also plays with Circa, um, who's been playing with Circa maybe for th- about three years at this stage. He's now playing drums with mm-hmm. James. And also Jake Kern, who is a fabulous guitar player, plays with Niall Horan and everyone else yeah. you've ever seen on stage ever, yeah. uh, now plays guitar with James. And Paul Kenny, who um, was playing drums with James, is now kind of shifted role so he's now playing some drums some guitar some keys and cool, um, okay. he's like the, the multi-tool yeah. so there was a definite <laughs> yeah. kind of uh there was a, sh- a shifting around of things so you know i i was lucky in that i was still playing the same thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Happy it was just days. a case of learning the new material yeah but um you know there was yeah it, it kind of felt like a new energy like when we you know when we were on tour last time we you know, everything was to click track. We had things on SPDs, not tracks necessarily, but samples and yeah, that kind of, of thing. Course, yeah. Um, you know, in, in an effort to get very close to the sound of the record. Um, but I think kind of James's priority, I, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn for him, but mm. kind of his, his vision for this next set of songs or for the next live iteration of the band is, um, less, tra- no track, ideally where, where possible, okay. more, everyone playing their instruments and creating kind of live versions of the songs as opposed to feeling like the songs have to be an exact replica of what's on the record. Yeah. Um, you know, instead of saying, you know, oh, it's that exact synth sound, it doesn't have to be exactly that. What function is that performing? Is it like a lovely big pad that supports the vocals or, you know, is it a certain kind of sound? It just, we're, we're more working towards creating a, a great live interpretation of the songs. And I think that's, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, as, yeah. you know, as a consumer of, of music speaking as like someone who just enjoys going to gigs and stuff like that. I think that's like half the fun sometimes is seeing how it translates. And I I would mm. say that that was like a nice, a nice challenge as well coming back yeah. into the fall because obviously James has been working with Kenny Beats and the guys mm-hmm. in, in, in the US and that's, not necessarily all live instruments, of course. So mm. um, those translations, I can imagine, were a lot of fun and a lot like just to have that back again, you know, to have that. Yeah. In, it, like working it out in a rehearsal space and stuff. I can yeah, imagine. Yeah, I think it was a really, really, cha- a really interesting challenge for the band because it's not just, OK, you know, recreating this exactly as per the record. It was, you know, it was a bit more of a thinker yeah. of, okay, what's that thing? What's, what's that element? What function is it performing? How can I do something that creates the same, that serves the same purpose? So it yeah. was a little bit more, it kind of just felt like everyone was playing to their peak. I can't really articulate it much better than that, but it felt, you know, like everyone's really strong, capable, talented musicians. And it felt like we were all all the arrangements were really lean because we weren't using track. There was nothing superfluous on it. Everything that was on the track was absolutely necessary. And, you know, it was everyone kind of using their smarts the best they could to be like, what's the most efficient arrangement of it? What's the best use of each of the instruments, the best use of each of the people in the band? Mm-hmm. 
to get the best live version of the song. So it was really interesting. It was really exciting. And just being back in a rehearsal room was was great. And, you know, being back in a rehearsal room with a purpose, knowing that yeah. we were we were going to get to perform for people. Unfortunately, it, was, it wasn't as many as we would have liked. Um, but it was it was still so great to do. And that gig was such a buzz. Yeah, it, like uh, that. Like I said, that's all I could think about was like the preparation for that gig and how fun yeah. that must have been, and then just the catharsis of being back on the stage. You know. Yeah. Um, I did. You were talking about you know those kind of iterations that weren't necessarily the same as they were in the album. They don't have to sound similar. Um, with the Theodore Byrne ensemble that you've done, do you feel like the work that you've done with that then helped? with the the fact that you could, you know, I suppose, do things in a different way because I know that you've been doing some stuff with Bell X1 and reimagining mm-hmm. their stuff. So mm-hmm. is that something that you've enjoyed kind of putting your foot back into that way? Or do you feel like because you had kind of been doing the, the ensemble stuff that when, you know, the gig came knocking and this was the ask, was it an easier task? Yeah, I think so. Um I think the, the, as a generalization, actually, no, not as a generalization, exclusively from my experience, um, <laughs> <laughs> the exact opposite. Um, yeah. I don't write my own music. Um, I might in the future. I don't know. It's just not something that is calling out to me right now. I feel mm-hmm. like there's so many people who are exceptional songwriters, exceptional composers, exceptional music creators. And that's, it's not what, it, it's not what I'm interested in right now. Um, and like I said, what I like about what I do is the challenge of bringing other people's music into the the live um, arena, we'll say. Yeah. And the challenge of putting that all together. And the stuff I'm doing with the Theodore Brown Ensemble has kind of been my, my personal way of satisfying that creative bit inside me. You know, of saying this is a song that I really like, whether it's... Um, Bad Skin Day with with Bell X One Corpses with Saint Sister uh, Thirty One with Kieran Lavery and um, uh, Stitches with Maria Kelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's been listening to a song that I love, and I suppose thinking what would I what would I do with it if it was if it was my song, and you know, maintaining the essence of the song, but trying to create something around that. Yeah. And, you know, do, doing doing a, a different interpretation of it or adding something new that maybe the artist wouldn't necessarily have added themselves. Like we were on the uh, the Heart of Saturday Night on Saturday, just gone performing yeah. with Bell X1, which is our first in-person performance. And Dave from Bell X1 said in their little interview portion, he said, you know, it's it, it, it brought a new musicality to the song that, you know, from them having been performing it for years and years, that they wouldn't have heard necessarily themselves or they wouldn't have gone back and done something different to that song. Yeah. So, you know, so so having print performing it the way it is for so long. So that was really, really lovely to hear. And, you know, maybe that's part of what I'm doing of trying to to find something in the music that the artist didn't find. Maybe that sounds really conceited. I hope it doesn't. I don't, I don't think it does. <laughs> I actually think there's a lot of parallels between what you're saying about, you know, trying to find something that maybe someone else didn't hear. And, you mm. know, um, I think there's a lot of parallels between that and in the session world and in the kind of ensemble world that you're doing there mm. and in the production world that I would do because it's people that are, br- like, artists are bringing you 
in my uh, in my world, it's artists bringing me demos or they're bringing me songs that they've recorded themselves, and they're saying, "Well, how can we, you know, how can we work on this and how can we make it better?" Mm. And I'm saying, I'm listening to it, and it's kind of like trust in your gut. I, I, which I imagine is the same for you. It's like you immediately hear something that's not there. Yeah. And um, all of a sudden that could be the thing that changes something mm. for for the better in its entirety or it could be, Mm-mm. you know, or, oh, well, what if we did it this way? What if we slowed it down? What if we sped it up? What if we took away this section? What if we added this section instead? What if there's a chord change here, there? You know, stuff like that. Um, so I feel like there are a lot of parallels in in, yeah. that, in in that world um and it was very interesting hearing you say that you know I don't make my own music but I find that like I express my creativity in this way instead that's how yeah. I feel about myself because I don't make my own music either I do mm. the odd time I like do a throwaway thing once every two years if I'm arsed <laughs> to be quite <laughs> honest but I, I enjoy spending the time um with other people's music and really like getting to the bottom of the story and the bottom of the you know where they were when they were writing it and mm. um trying to tap into that feeling yeah. and that energy and um, kind of the essence what's yeah, the essence exactly. of the song exactly it's like where you know paint me a picture as to where you were when you wrote this or like mm. what's it about and like you know give me the kind of I suppose scouring the deepest, darkest corners of the music itself for maybe something, like you say, that the artist hasn't found yet. Yeah. Which I think is, yeah. I think is fun, you know, and it can be, it can be draining, like it can be emotionally draining in mm. that world. Um, and I imagine it's the same when you are trying to reimagine a piece because like, like you say, you're looking for the essence. Um, yeah. How, how do you, like, is it a case of trust in your gut with that or is there like, is it a case of you listening to it over and over and over again and, you know, maybe hearing something that isn't quite there, like in, in, a, yeah, fa- in so a phantom essence or like how does it work? Yeah. Through? So I suppose the songs that I've picked so far, they've all, it, it's all been me approaching an artist saying, hello, knocking on your door. Can I ruin your song potentially? <laughs> um <laughs> So it's all, it's, it's mm. been me seeking out these songs and saying, you know, can I do an arrangement of this song? Um, because I, 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 you know, I, I want to be able to get to that creative place and be able to find something that the artist hasn't or bring out something new or highlight something different from the original version. So I, I, I try to pick songs that I can, you know, when I listen to something, I hear something. Mm-hmm. Like in in the the very very first one that I did, which was Stitches by Maria Kelly, I heard like a kind of a a call a response thing in the second verse. Like not even with the intention of doing the arrangement. I just I love that song. Maria's a good pal of mine. I mm. listened to it and I was like, I can feel like I can hear a thing there. I should, I should do something with that. I wonder and if I could this, try this out. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you know, every song that I've done so far has been one that I'm like, that kind of thing would be cool in there. You know. Can I can I do that instead of you know okay here's a song okay now I have to, okay I have to, okay mm, uh, yeah I suppose I could do something like that you know trying to pick the songs where I have an idea yeah um yeah no I I I, I kind of I feel like it's very analytical sometimes you know I feel like it can be like I think it all comes back to 
one thing and like for from listening to you speak I feel like it, like I said there's a lot of parallels and you know a lot of it feels like problem solving to a degree mm. yeah, you know, yeah, you t- yeah you talked about the jigsaw puzzle and you talked about you know finding that arrangement that's not there and like trying and testing these things to see if they mm. work um, I think that when it does and when it does come to fruition and you, like when you have had something that's in your mind and you're trusting that to be the right thing or be something that sounds and feels good because there can be stuff that sounds good but doesn't necessarily feel right you know sure yeah. um i think that's a very rewarding moment yeah big time and like even in my process of of doing the arrangements it's just me singing into my laptop trying to find things and you know like being like okay i'll try something i'll record it i don't know what i'm going to do yet and you know probably 80% of the time it's terrible like oh instantly delete that but you know sometimes you can stumble upon something that you're like oh that came out of my mouth unplanned and it was kind of cool but you know the all of the songs go through you know a couple of stages usually I sit down the, you know whatever whatever day I start it I sit down and I kind of listen through and I'm like oh yeah la 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 la, la that kind of thing you know something like that something cool here a call and responsey thing here some ooze here, you know, I kind of block out ideas very crudely. Mm. Um, and then I leave it and I, you know, I kind of get to the point where I'm like, okay, no other creative juices are flowing. I'm going to leave it. I'll come back to it in a few, in a few days. Yeah. And then you come back and you're like, Ooh, I like that. That's terrible. That's terrible. That's <laughs> terrible. Maybe rejig that one a little bit. Mm. So you're like, okay, I don't like that bit. And then maybe you're like, Ooh, that thing that I have in the second chorus actually works better as a third chorus. Maybe I'll put that at the end. Because it, you know, it's the dynamic climax, or it's you know the the kind of the peak emotionally, or whatever. It's like okay, well then, how do I do a you know a slightly peeled back second chorus version of that that doesn't you know that kind of leaves us with somewhere to go, or you know, and then you know I'll, I'll, when I have kind of a, a working demo, I'll send it to the artist and say, what do you think? What do you like? What do you hate? Everything can be changed. You mm-hmm. know, this is your song at the end of the day. This is just me singing shout over your song. Um, and sometimes people come back and are like, oh my God, that bit's so cool. A bit that I was like, yeah, I'm not crazy about that bit yet. You know, like sometimes mm. I send it to people and it's, you know, the middle eight still needs work, but it's, that's the kind of thing I'm thinking we'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, and sometimes people can like latch onto something that I was like, oh yeah, and that, and that, that's fine too. And people love that. Or they think, oh no, no, maybe bring it right down there or it'd be really cool if it got really big there before getting really small again yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, you know, then uh, then it becomes a back and forth with the artist of that bit's cool, that bit's not, that's right, that's less right. This this is the kind of atmosphere we're going for. Because mm-hmm. again, you know, it's a reinterpretation, but it's also a, a collaboration. You know, someone is giving me a song to add to. At the end of the day, it's, you know, it's, it's my arrangement of their song. Mm-hmm. If they hate it, it's no good. Yeah. So it's trying to, it's, it's, and actually Bellex one were great for that. The guys were really, really receptive and really, um, offered a lot of suggestions and feedback. That's really cool. Oh, what if, if you listen to the bit on the record where it does that kind of thing, maybe we could do something like that, or mm-hmm. maybe you could come up there or, you know, it could go down there or something, you know? So some people are like some of the artists that I've worked with have been like free reign, go for it, do your thing. Yeah. And then some people are more are more involved in the process and, and both are great. You know, it's such a, it's, it's really early stages in this project. It's something that I, I mean, had COVID not happened, I simply wouldn't have done because 
there are a lot of people involved and it, it's it's time consuming and there are lots of moving parts. So I'm really, really glad in a way that I got to do this this year, but it's still also very, very early on. So I, I, I feel ridiculous saying, oh, you know, this is the format and this is how I do it. Like, I'm just about to start working on the sixth, the sixth ever one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, it seems ridiculous to say that I have it worked out. I absolutely don't. Everyone is a, is a new challenge. It's a new approach. It's a new negotiation with the artist. It's a new collaboration. It's, you know, I'm very much still learning. I think there's a lot of beauty in that. I think there's a lot yeah. of um, the fact that it's so open-ended. I, th- I, I, I try and kind of keep my workflow similar because mm. I could be working on this with one person. I could be working on this with the next person. I think like I, I would be the same as like to, for me to say that my format is this, that or the third. It, it, I'd be totally lying. Like I'd be lying to myself. I'd be lying yeah. to you. I'd be lying to the people that I work with, you know. So um yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of creative um, air to move around and to, Hmm. um, I suppose like you're never going to know when you're going to find something that you're going to really enjoy. Like there could be an element that you might really enjoy in this sixth version that you like that you Mm. take into, you know, the next 20. You just, you just don't know. Um, Mm. What I found uh, I, 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 I've been drawing a lot of parallels just in what you're saying and kind of my work and I've said the word parallel about a million times in this in the Zoom call <laughs> but uh, have would you consider if an artist approached you to produce a record is that something that you consider doing because listening to you speak on your work on the ensemble and your work in the problem solving aspect of you know rearranging stuff for live as a as a session player or um you know, doing some musical direction. I think that all of the elements that you have and those different things to be brought together to make a record with someone, mm-hmm. I think you'd be an excellent candidate for someone to ask oh, that. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's it's true, like, because that's, these are the things that I feel, personally, I feel are, you know, very necessary qualities to have. Mm-hmm. And for your experience that you've had working with other people's songs and enjoying that as your creative catharsis, mm. I think it would be, it, it could easily be a natural progression to something that you move into in the mm. future. Would it be something that you'd have an interest in doing? Yeah, absolutely. I generally, as a person, am kind of slow to jump into new things Um as I'm, you know, I, I don't think anyone who works in any creative field will be unaware of imposter syndrome. I struggle very, very deeply with imposter syndrome. I think as I Irish kind, people, it's ingrained into our DNA. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I think I kind of need to be, I kind of need to be pushed into new scenarios. You know, like I was even thinking a couple of months ago, you know, all of the Theodore Byrne Ensemble stuff so far has been online. 
um, which, you know, is challenging in its own way. But it's also great from my perspective. It's very controllable. You know, it gives everyone who's involved loads of time. You know, everyone gets their their line recorded. You know, if, if you make a mess of recording it once, you can just go back and record it again. Everyone has a couple of weeks to do it loads of times. You know, nothing is live. Nothing is immediate. Everything can be fixed. And even at that, you know, when, when, when we're mixing it, if something's too loud, just make it a little quieter. If something's a little quiet, just make it a bit louder. If someone's timing is out, you know, you can nudge around the audio, that kind of thing. It's very, it's a very controlled environment. So I was you know, thinking about how do you translate that back into live. We had a great difficulty translating all of the live things into digital. So I kind of hadn't even considered the implications of going the other way. Mm. And, you know, it seems like, oh, you know, what if, you know, something wasn't, you know, something doesn't come together or if it sounds unbalanced, if I pick the, you know, too few people or, you know, too many people and that's hard to get people to get, you know, how do you, how do you, how do I do that? It would seem like a, it would seem like a leap to me from where, where I am to where I would want to be. And I, I, I would have a very hard time uh, committing to taking that leap personally. So then when Bell X1 asked, asked me to get a group together to do the Hardest Saturday Night, that seemed like the perfect opportunity. It was one song. It was for an event that was already happening. So it was one song that, w- that we had already, that we had already done. I had yeah. already arranged it. Mm-hmm. I, I knew I was happy with the arrangement people knew the arrangement, people liked the arrangement, all good things. Mm. Um, there was only going to be 12 people. So I wasn't going to be, you know, wasting a hundred people's day. Uh, you know, it was, it was for an event that was already happening. I didn't have to plan an event and take on the, the, the fear of nobody yeah. coming to your event. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and there was budget, you know, which, which is, it's important to me that I was able to, to pay all the singers something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of, it was it was kind of the perfect instance to do that that it you know it wasn't something that I was exclusively responsible for it was something that I was doing for someone else perfect that was ideal um and I and you know now having done that that was kind of proof of concept for me that it works in person when you pick excellent singers which you know all of the singers that I've that I have in the ensemble that I have involved in the project you know there was 42 people in the last one I think I have a list of 55 singers that that have expressed interest, which is great. So many people, mm. you know, now, now I know in person it works with 12 people. So I know that any more than 12 people is going to sound amazing. Great. Yes. You know, it, it, now I would be way less um, fearful of taking the leap to something like putting on a gig or doing a live recording or, you know, kind of backing myself and saying, no, this is something that 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 works. Mm. A lot- when you pick... Oh, sorry. No, continue. Sorry for interrupting you. Know. That's okay. Um, so, yeah, in general, I'm I'm cautious to jump into new things. I did a project in um, March with Here One, mm-hmm. where um, I actually don't know if I can talk about this or not, but I will. <laughs> and I will check. Um, where Here One had picked eight um female artists and we were going to go into the studio and we were going to record a compilation album of alternative versions um, of their songs. So we were going to cool. do eight tracks. So the artist would pick one of their own songs and then we kind of do a, a, a new interpretation of it. Mm. Um, and I was musical director for that. So I was asked to be musical director for that. And I was like, I don't know if this is something that I can do. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if it... Da, 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 da. Mm. And eventually I kind of just have to be like, you know what? 
if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. I'm never going to seek out someone and say, hey, could I be musical director for your project or could I produce your record? I'm just not going to do that. I don't have that kind of confidence in myself without Mm -hmm. having an experience behind, without, without having experience behind me. And that ended up being such a brilliant experience. You know, I was working with these fabulous um, female musicians. I was working with an excellent engineer and it was really good. And, you know, like that, we had, we had time to work out the arrangements. We had, we had time to go back and forth with the artists and collaborate. And we had time to demo everything. I had time to find the right musicians for it. We had time in the studio. Um, So that was really good. And I suppose that was, it was musical direction, but it was a production role as well. Yeah. Um, like we, we, we were able to get very few musicians in just for, for budgetary reasons. So a lot of them were kind of stripped back versions of the songs. Um, but ultimately I was, I was, I was really proud with the results of that. And, you know, the whole team and the artists seemed really, really pleased with the, the, with, with the end product, which is not yet, but hopefully it will be some point in the future. Um, so yeah, I think if someone was like, hey, Theo, I want you to produce my record, I'd be like, yeah, cool, into it. But I'd never, I feel like I'd never volunteer myself mm. until someone was like, hey, I want you to do it. And it went really well. Yeah, you know? I I understand. Um, I think for me, <laughs> it's funny because I've kind of, I jump in the deep end almost the opposite way around. I'm like, yeah, mm. well, I mean, I've not done this before, but I can you know work it out I can figure it out you know yeah give me say, half a, say give me yes half a chance. and figure it out later yeah give yeah. me half a chance I think I'd probably be okay you know yeah um, so it, it, <laughs> I think I've learned to kind of be a bit more cautious <laughs> you know over time when you're that's like that's good though when you're, yeah you, know, you do you need to back yourself yeah oh, you, know, no, 100%. you need to be like yeah fuck it I'll do that I'll figure it out I think that there's like like you talked about the you know imposter syndrome thing and I you know it affects so many creatives, uh, mm. p- particularly in Ireland. I, I, again, like I said, I think it's must be the Catholic shame. But <laughs> like, uh, I think that there is a massive need for people to back themselves. Mm. And I, I think there's a lot to be gained from that. I think mm. that I wouldn't like, you know, I wouldn't be where I am now if I didn't back myself on certain projects. Yeah. Like, you know, or having the confidence to just approach something. If you're asked to do something, like you said, sometimes it can scare the shit out of you. Like it really can. And, you know, to see a result at the end of it um, is such a rewarding feeling. And like that will carry through. Then, like you say, if, you know, someone approaches you to produce a record, which, you know, quite frankly, speaking to you in the manner that we have and like hearing your process and hearing how things work, I quite frankly think they should. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I think they would have a great experience and great result at the end. But if that were to happen and, you know, that was to be, that was how it would come to pass. Who's to say that that wouldn't be something that you end up doing for the next 20 years? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like it's, it's absolutely. It's absolutely I, I think open-ended. there's an element. Yeah, I think there's an element as well um, of not seeing a whole lot of other women doing it. And feeling that if I'm going to do it, I want to be really, 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 really good. Because, mm-hmm. if you know, if I musical direct a project or if I arrange something or if I produce something, I don't want it to be like, oh, yeah, it was good. You know, it, it was it was good. I want it to be really good. And that's a that's a, a selfish thing within me of saying if I'm going to put my name to something, I want it to be really, really good. And I never want it to be like, oh, yeah, it's really good for a female producer, you know. 
I understand. And I'm not saying yeah. that anyone would necessarily say that, but just as someone who's working in a male dominated industry, yeah. like I definitely do. And I'm, this is entirely self-inflicted. The lads are not making me feel like this, but you mm. know, I feel that if I'm going to do something that the lads are doing, it needs to be as good, if not better. Yeah, no, I understand. Same, entirely I, self-inflicted. No, but no, but I, t- I fully understand it because like you say, even when I was kind of doing research initially into this podcast, Mm. looking for people because it was it, it was originally just kind of like production and engineering and stuff and I felt that it wasn't di- like it wasn't nearly diverse as diverse as it should be um, mm. for me and that's something I wanted it to be you know um, because in a male dominated industry I just don't think that would be fair but mm. also because it's such a male dominated industry I feel like that's fully uh, like that's a, a fully warranted position to come from is like it has to be better you know um mm-hmm. and i respect that so much as well but like even just holding yourself to a high standard show a- across the board shows how committed anyone is and also mm. how good anyone is if you're holding yourself to that high of a standard i think it speaks a lot to the quality that you are producing yourself mm. Mm. um it's great like it really is it, it's great and um it was nice to be able to like speak to someone in this regard. And I'm like, oh my God, actually this could be, I, I'm like, I'm here in production in what you're saying. You mm. know what I mean? I'm here, everything that you're telling me, I'm just like, yeah, tick in the box, tick in the box, tick in the box, you know? <laughs> um, so like the fact that it's something that you would consider is very Yeah, I mean, exciting. like, at this, stage like my, at this stage of my career, you know, the last few years, I've really been trying to, to diversify and, and, do as much as I can. I love touring and I love playing, but I understand that that's not forever, you know, and like it's a it's a really kind of busy bustling lifestyle and it's great fun, but I'm fully aware that, you know, a couple of years down the line that might not be what I want to do. So, you know, I at the moment I'm well, covid notwithstanding, <laughs> I'm gigging, I'm touring, I'm arranging, I I direct a choir, I lecture you know I'm I, I I like to have lots of things on the go and I feel like then everything that you do feeds into everything that you do yeah, 100% so you like, know yeah. leading a choir helps with translating stuff to live mm-hmm. and gigging helps you with teaching you know everything feeds into itself so I mean I'm, I'm not going to close myself off to anything at this stage of my career because I think that any new experience just gives you more experience I could not agree more with what you're saying because like again it's been certain experiences that I've taken on like with the musical direction stuff I've been able to feed some stuff back into uh, production world and songwriting world Mm. and you know songwriting world then feeds into production world and mix world feeds into you know direction world and you know it all has its own part to play in each different thing I don't think anything is mutually exclusive by any stretch of the imagination when it comes to um you know, when it comes to music, uh, you mentioned lecturing. Yeah. Um, one thing mm-hmm. I wanted to ask was having all of the knowledge that you've now gained from all of these different, um, I suppose, uh, tributaries of, you know, the music industry and mm-hmm. all of the stuff that you've seen and experienced. How do you impart that knowledge onto other people? Uh, that's a really good question. So I lecture in music theory. 
So I teach the maths of music <laughs> college. <laughs> I teach the really boring bit. Um, but I think, you know, with with the experience that I have in respect to music theory, like I'm, I'm, I'm big into music theory. I, I, I love it. I think it's great. I think it's, you know, it's not something that's absolutely necessary, but it's, it's like speaking a language. It just helps you communicate a little bit more effectively, I think. So, mm-hmm. you know, I have this debate with people all the time and people come into my class and I say, I don't want to learn music theory. It, you know, it, I can already play. It's like, yeah, you can, but you know, would you not like to understand the, the little bits that connect the things that you can do. It just makes you an effective communicator. And, you know, especially when you're a session musician, just being able to say it's an A minor, you know, across mm. the stage or be like, oh, we're, we're not playing the same thing there. What are you playing? Oh, cool, cool, cool. I'll play that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just, it speeds up the process a little bit instead of being like, oh, I'm playing this, but I don't know what it is, you know, or being able to be like, oh, the rhythm is this as, you know, just being able to transfer information really quickly is helpful. Um, mm. So I suppose, yeah, being able to, like having that spe- experience of applying music theory in that way to my own work is helpful when students are like, oh, I don't want to do this, this is shit. It's like, mm. yes, I know, I know it feels really boring now. It feels like maths. I understand that, you know, it's all the little technical stuff, but here's how it can be really helpful. And here's, here's how it's it's made my life easier. And that's so key, right? Because like it's, those it's that relatability like I said you know the way nothing is mutually exclusive so music theory Mm. can I mean music theory is universal I think anyway um, in saying that can't read a note of music uh, I think you'd hate being in a studio would be quite quite frankly Um, (laughs) we'll give it a try sometime uh, sometime yeah 100% you can see how long you last (laughs) without slamming the door Um, but yeah I think uh, to be able to give that information back to people in a different way that's more palatable Mm. I'd say that makes your life so much easier just I think you know teaching anyone anything especially people who are just like you know don't don't know don't care kind of thing yeah Um, if you you know what you're talking about and you know how you can apply it it's so much easier to convince people to do it. <laughs> yeah. and how But also, you know, I, I do have, to, like, I think I, I got a couple of months into my first year of teaching and then it was uh, early 2020 when mm-hmm. I was going on a tour with St. Sister uh, to the States and I was doing a UK tour with Circa Richardson. And, you know, I said to my class, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be here for the next couple of weeks. I'm going on tour. And they were all like, what? You're going on tour. And I was like, yeah, I'm going on tour with Saint Sister and Sir Christian. And they were like, what? We didn't know you were a musician. We thought you were just a theory teacher. You're like, mm. guys, <laughs> like, <laughs> what do you think I'm doing here? You know, and then they're like, oh, she's cool. Yeah, Theo's cool. It's like, mm, thanks. Do you All think of, I was a, it took like, that like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, theory's cool. Learn yeah. theory, go on tour. <laughs> yeah, that was what you left them with. Just like, yeah, mic drop. Yeah. Love it. And then I haven't seen them since then. <laughs> <laughs> How has that been, um, the whole lecturing um, experience just in terms of like I don't know if that was ever something that you would have kind of set out to do Um, yeah personally for me I would love to do some kind of lecturing down the line at some point I don't Mm. by any means have enough experience I don't think to start lecturing um, Mm. at any point in the near future but in the future it is something that I would like to do particularly in music production because I think sometimes it can be a bit of a mysterious thing and that's part mm. of the point of this podcast is yeah. that I think some of the behind the scenes stuff like musical direction, sound engineering, um, production, um, you know, even 
what it's like arranging for a musician I think can be kind of not a dark art but I think there's like a kind of a an unknown a yeah there's a, there's, a curtain, don't there's a curtain there's a curtain in front yeah, of it yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I love lecturing it's something that's kind of always been on my radar both of my parents are now retired but they were lecturers for my whole life in the Limerick School of Art and Design mm. Um, so I suppose I've always you know like when they were my age and a little bit younger and a little bit older you know they they kind of did the art equivalent of what I'm doing now of you know a little bit of teaching a little bit of you know making your own work a little bit of this a little bit of that teaching a night class you know opening opening a little independent practice that kind of thing you know lots of odd jobs and working for yourself and working for other people and doing a million different things to try and make ends meet and to try you know build, building a career out of lots of little little strands of things um and then you, you know like when they were i mean this is before i was born then mm. started you know lecturing part time and doing a few hours here and there so it seems like it's definitely something that's always been on my radar of something that can really support you mm-hmm. in doing your own stuff um and like that you know like i've learned so much about the the, the way i think about things through explaining them you know, you're like, oh, yeah, that's how I think about that. And then you explain it to someone else and you're like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that I felt that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I really like it. I like, like, I, I I loved being in school, being in college. I I went back last year and just did a master's, which I just finished last week. So I like, I love being in an education environment mm. and I like part, imparting information. You know, I like being able to share my experience with other people. I love, 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 love when someone gets something oh, and it's, you see it, it. It is the best you know, feeling, when, yeah. When, when you make a connection for something, when they're like, oh, it's that. And you're like, yes, yes. <laughs> um, it's, it's very satisfying. But it's like, you know, I really like helping people. I really like imparting information and I like supporting people in their creative endeavors. So lecturing is definitely, it's something that I only do part time at the moment um, in BIM, but uh, I really enjoy it. It's great. It's it's lovely. I mean, when you like some, you know, I suppose like anything, you get people who are really interested and you get people who kind of don't give a shit. Um, but it's about finding the mid-ground and, if, you know, the people who are there to learn. It can be very, very, very uh, fulfilling. Yeah, I can only imagine, like even you say about making the connection, you know, yeah. it's it's funny because like I ta- I'm, you know, talking about what I know because... You know, it's what I kind of spent most of my time too. Sure. Even in kind of production world, it's like, well, what if we go this direction for this lyric because, or what if we do this with this lyric because mm-hmm. that accents it, then it makes more sense in the context yeah. of the song and you see an artist then go, oh, okay. Mm. And that's like a really th- nice thing because then yeah. it's something that they're going to think about going yeah. forward as well. So I just think that there's so much strength in sharing our ideas, sharing resources, sharing skills and talent and experience you know we don't we don't gain a lot by keeping those things secret and you know keeping being like oh no no I know this thing but I'm not gonna but I'm not gonna tell you because then you know I don't want you to know it I just want to be the only person who knows it I don't think there's a lot of strength and community and um collaboration in that I think I think information and skill and knowledge and everything should be shared. And now there are obviously things that are people's specialities and, you know, you have to get that guy to do that thing or you have to get them to do that thing, you know, because that's the thing they're really, really good at. But I just, I, I think that information is there to be shared. 
you know? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, that's the point of this podcast. And I just want to thank you for sharing your experience today. So, Theo, thanks very much. Thanks so much for having thanks, me on. Thanks very much for uh, t- spending your time on this Monday afternoon. <laughs> Sunny Monday <was> afternoon. <laughs> yeah, beautiful Monday afternoon. Yeah. It was so nice to chat to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. I never thought that when you built our home, you'd make it out of blood and bones darling one of us should go darling one of us should go darling one of us should go That was before the encore with Theodora Byrne, the ever insightful and just incredibly talented um, musician all around. Um, great human being. Really, really, really enjoyed that chat. And um, I took a lot from it. <laughs> I certainly am going to be taking a lot back into my practice from uh, that. Drawn a lot of parallels. So like I said in the recording, I'm really waiting for to see who picks Theodore to, you know, produce that album because I think she's um, the perfect candidate for um, production. But um, time will only tell. For now, you can find Theodora online on theodoraburn.com or you can find her on Instagram um, at Theodora Byrne, all one word. Um, definitely worth following some great content on there you can find um, all of the Theodore Byrne Ensemble stuff on um, her IGTV you can also find it on YouTube um, and uh, something I didn't mention at the top of the show is actually she was involved in the Irish Women in Harmony thing she uh, just spoke briefly on that as well um, in the episode about something she was involved in so um, you can check all of those out to find her bits but keep an eye for more from her good self because um, I'm sure that you can see by the caliber of artists that she's working with, and um, uh, personally, I think you can hear the talent even in just the way she speaks. So, um, like I said, I was very, very grateful, um, very grateful to get to speak to her and just like harvest those little knowledge, those little kind of knowledge diamonds, and um, yeah, just really enjoy getting to chat shop with a like-minded individual um but that's before the encore for this month so in the meantime please subscribe to the now encore feed you'll get absolutely everything in there as soon as it comes out we're on patreon patreon.com slash now encore um but for now i've been sonic architect adam and this has been before the encore um there will be an encore and it's going to be the last one day of next month as this comes out the last one day of every month so take care and i'll chat to you then
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.